Hey, Chris. How are you feeling? <laughs> Should I tell you about my week, Chris? Well, you know. There's good news. What's the good news? There's good news. I have a brand new nephew. Oh, that's right. Congratulations. Leo William Akabak was born on Sunday, April 7th at 3.58 p.m. Uh, he's healthy. Mom is healthy. Everybody's happy and home. The bad news is I'm exhausted from taking care of my four and a half year old niece during this whole process, well, who I'm pretty sure also got me sick. So. <laughs> I, I hate to say this, but I was going to say that good news probably explains why you look a little white. I also just got back into Albany two hours ago, just less than two right. hours. <laughs> just in time for another sausage of science episode Kara. but you know the amazing thing is given all the travel problems i had uh i had no travel problems because i totally expected to not be here for this interview today because of my constant issues with delays and cancellations and so something worked out i'm so happy that you are because lord knows i could use the help Oh my goodness. Also, <laughs> as I'm going to hack through most of this interview, I need to give a shout out to my uncle, Ron Akabak, who listens to the podcast. I don't even know how he found out about it. So, hi, Uncle Ron. Yo, Uncle uh, Ron. But I should say, his, his nickname is Runka. That's what we've always called him as kids. So, hi, Runka. I'm so excited that you listen to the podcast. You won't hear the shout out until what? Midsummer? Yeah, sometime. Sometime midsummer. Anyway, so hopefully you continue listening. For this Easter egg. Indeed. <laughs> well, let me tell you about our guest today. Please do, because uh, I know he's coming to your campus to give a talk, so I'm a little bit more in the dark about what's going on. Yeah, so as, as you know, we often have guest speakers here for a variety of lecture series, one of which um, is called the Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution. It's a speaker series I've been involved in for about... Well, for the whole 10 years I've been here, it's a 12-year-old speaker series. And so our speakers represent a variety of disciplines. And today's speaker is Dr. David Geary, who is a cognitive developmental and evolutionary psychologist with interest in mathematical cognition and learning, as well as the biological bases of sex differences. And he is coming to us. Uh, he's a curator's professor of psychological sciences at the University of Missouri-Columbia. So this is a little bit different for some of our listeners, but I want to throw out the caveat because I'm aware of some people in our discipline having some strong feelings about evolutionary psychology. Kara might be one of them. I am not. <laughs> I was trained in evolutionary psychology as well as human biology. And so this has always been a bit of a source point for me, mainly because I think we need to judge the science and not the scientist or the discipline. So maybe I can ask, what led to you asking Dr. Greary to be in the Allele series, or were you the one who initiated it? I did not. I was not. And in fact, although I am familiar with his work, I'm not as familiar with it as I am some other folks. So uh, he was actually invited by Farat Solyu. Farat is an educational neuroscientist. So I'm going to bring him in now rather than make him wait out there and, and chit-chat anymore. We have a lot of questions. He's had a long and storied career, and so we have many things we can ask him about and take up lots of time. 
So let me just start. We already did a little bit of an introduction and told the listeners who you are. And I sent you some questions, but I'm going to start with the second one because I think that'll set up a little bit about you and, and you can fill in some of the context. But you're the sole author of four books, uh-huh. Children's Mathematical Development from 94, uh, Male, Female, The Evolution of Human Sex Differences from 98, which is the one I believe has been reprinted in a, a mm-hmm. new edition recently. Yeah. The Origin of Mind, Evolution of Brain, Cognition, and General Intelligence from 2005, and Evolution of Vulnerability, Implications for Sex Differences in Health and Development from 2015, which you're going to be speaking about tonight. So my question for you is to ask if you could connect the dots. How does your interest in children's math development relate to the evolution of sex differences in cognition? (laughs) Well, great question doesn't actually relate that much. And there's some overlap that, that I can talk about a bit. In graduate school, I went to study developmental neuropsych, uh, hemispheric specialization sorts of things. I became interested in potential sex differences in changes in that during uh, puberty and was going to do my dissertation on that topic. But we're doing kids and had to draw blood and so ran into all sorts of human subject sorts of issues. So I basically had to drop that dissertation. And during the same time, I was working with another person who's a quantitative psychologist. He was studying individual differences in um, mathematics. So we're using uh, statistics to kind of model people's problem-solving processes for complex arithmetic. So I just switched and did my dissertation on that. So I kind of got on the math line of it, but maintained my sex differences interest. Being uh, more cautious back then and practical, I thought, well, I'll stick with the kind of standard math cognition development type of work until I get uh, tenure. And then Mm -hmm. I take on evolutionary types of issues and sex differences types of issues, which is what I did. And then, but I've kept up the math work. In fact, one of my first evolution articles and arguments was on evolutionary and cultural influences on kids' mathematical development and academic development, arguing that we should make a distinction between evolved areas of cognition, and that would include things like language, for example, as as a kind of easy-to-understand example, and non-evolved or culture-specific types of skills, which would include things like reading and writing. Now, these are kind of built upon the evolved language system, but it requires specific educational interventions for them to occur. And making this distinction has very important kind of educational implications to it. And, and so that's kind of how I fuse the evolution of math stuff. And I still do a little bit of that fusing, but most of my sex differences work is, is separate. Mm. So given that you said you moved into some of the sex difference stuff and evolution mm-hmm. post-tenure, you recognize there's some controversy there. Yeah. So I, I wonder what your experience has been with that and why you have decided to, to write in that area and to advocate for evolution and education. Right, so I went into a straight kind of cognitive development uh, program in graduate school, but I took breath courses in comparative psych and physiological psych and uh, read a book on behavioral ecology Mm. during the comparative stuff. And I really liked it. I thought, well, this is the way to go. Mm -hmm. But there weren't many many jobs in that area, so I kind of stuck with the mainstream sorts of thing. Okay, well, I'm going to, learn as much as I can while I'm doing my standard developmental cognitions sorts of things. And then 
once I get tenure, I, I will kind of move in and try to integrate or mm -hmm. expand my work. In sex differences, I actually did become interested in that in graduate school as well. As I said, I was going to do my dissertation on it. You know, thankfully, I'm pretty socially insensitive. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I didn't really think too much about the controversy in terms of I thought, well, okay, you have this social, political sort of, I was aware of that. But I thought, well, when it comes to science, certainly that's kind of a protected area there. There wouldn't be issues. I, I was wrong, but, yeah. but you know, that was my, my kind of naive uh, belief about it. So while, while I was an assistant professor doing all this kind of standard math stuff, I, mm -hmm. I was reading as much as I could on the side and basically getting reading lists from some of the evolutionary anthropologists in my, uh, at, at, at Mizzou. Perfect. Mm -hmm. If I could, and this is totally not a question on a list, but this is always what happens. Given what you look at, especially the, the mathematical differences and sex differences, how do you take into account culture and just how children are raised? We, we've seen numbers of studies saying boys are encouraged to be better at math and science and girls are much more directed towards the English and humanities. How do you parse that up between actual cognition and then this cultural influence directing you know, the sexes one way versus the other? Yeah, good question. To, to really answer those questions, you need kind of large-scale data sets looking at countries that vary in the extent to which women have economic, political, and other types of, uh, of rights. And I have collaborated on those ty types of studies, and, and in fact, I'm still working on those as well. And we have looked at sex differences in STEM-related areas. And one way to address that question is to look at countries that are socially and politically gender equal. So the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and so forth, kind of have the most women and girl-friendly political social system in the world, probably anywhere, anytime in human history. And if the cultural influences are really critical, then sex differences in cognition, occupational interests, and so forth should be smaller in those countries than in other countries. And this, this has actually been, been studied by a number of firms. And we, we published a, an article on it just uh, last year, and we're, we're doing, working on a follow-up right now. But in any case, the bottom line is for uh, a lot of STEM-related types of things and a lot of other areas, the sex differences actually get bigger in the gender equal country. So as things get richer, easier, safer, people have more opportunities to express their individual preferences. And as they express their individual preferences, uh, we find more occupational segregation. So I think, Chris, if you're okay with that, I'm gonna to go to the fourth one, because I, this kind of gets into, at least this leads, I think, well into it. So we read one of your articles, a 2017 article, in the Quarterly Review of Biology, and the title of the article is Evolution of Human Sex-Specific Cognitive Vulnerabilities. And in it, and this is much more for the audience, because now that I know my uncle is listening to the show, I totally want to define terms <laughs> as much as possible. And you talk about folk cognition, as well as folk psychology and folk physics, as these being different ways of cognition. What do these mean, and what differences might there be between males and females? Right. So folk abilities are basically universal, evolved forms of cognition. So folk psychology would be 
language, um, inferences about the underlying thoughts and feelings of the individual, what we just call theory of mind. Folk physics would be things like the ability to navigate, but also, um, you know, uh, predicting the tra trajectory of movement of things and so yeah. forth. These are all universal things. Humans are quite sophisticated at them. Doesn't require any formal schooling and so forth. So taking an evolutionary approach, if there's any kind of evolved vulnerabilities, they're going to show up in the folk stuff. Something like reading and writing, it would be kind of indirect through through, through the language system. So it's either they evolved taxonomy of things versus talk. I was thinking you were going to ask him something about Finland. She works in <laughs> very very different. Although I do look at energetics, and so I was really excited to see your. Uh... That was kind of the start of that article was talking about energetic stressors and so when people are energetically stressed whether due to higher activity or fewer resources different things that are not necessary to survival basically take a back seat and so i quite enjoyed that right yeah that's a central argument mm -hmm. is that areas where due to competition evolutionary competition or mate choices or whatever so a peacock's tail for example for survival, but certainly is um, necessary to get dates, mm. put all sorts of energy and nutrients and other sorts of things into it, but it comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. So if you're stressed, energetically stressed, um, either due to nutritional problems or infectious disease or whatever, those extra resources are going to go into maintaining the body and keeping you alive and relatively healthy, and it's going to show up in the tail. So the exaggerated traits then uh, provide advantage, but they also become more sensitive to environmental stressors. And so they're, they're a good barometer of how things are going with the individual. And so in that article that you mentioned in book and some other ones argued that, well, we take that same basic argument and apply it to people. If we look at areas where women have advantages, language, theory of mind, reading facial expressions and so forth, then when they're undergoing some type of energetic or other stressor, toxin exposure, then they should take bigger hits in those areas. Mm -hmm. And if we look at areas where men do better, like some people's facial abilities, we should see the opposite. So digging down a little bit deeper into that, it seems like there are a lot of testable directions for research in, in the paper we read, and it sounds like the book and, and other articles. So what do you see as the next step, say, for anthropologists? So we're in the field looking at these aspects of human biology and, and other and, and evolutionary models. What can anthropologists take toward understanding this? And I'll paraphrase the conclusion. Your model suggests that mitochondrial energy and oxidative stress are the biological limits mm -hmm. on these sex-specific traits. So what's the important work that needs to be done? And then also, why is it important? Right. So I um, wrote an article for a uh, uh, tropical diseases journal, um, plus uh, neglected tropical diseases, taking some, some of the basic points in my book and saying, well, you know, a lot of these populations in developed countries are um, undergoing nutritional stress, either chronic or short term, a um, lot of um, chronic infections. There's a lot of 
stressors in their life and, and so social stressors as well, especially if they're, they're lower, uh, you have, have income issues. And those populations have been studied by physical anthropologists for decades. Mm-hmm. And they often look at things like skeletal height, you know, fat reserves and other types of things, which are, are useful. And, and I, I review a lot of that in the book and show that, you know, under this chronic stress, boys' height is more compromised than girls, particularly during adolescence, mm-hmm. okay, which makes perfect sense. But but also point out point out that you know a lot of other things are going on during that time. There, there's periods of rapid brain development, you know, gray matter development and, and other sorts of things that occur at, at different times and at different ages for boys and girls. There's a lot of cognitive changes going on, so forth. So to really fully understand the implications of chronic stress, disease, uh, chronic disease, nutritional problems. Uh, you have to look at more than skeletal sorts of things, and you can expand uh, the assessments to include some of the you know language, theory mm-hmm. of mind, spatial abilities, some of the sort, sorts of things that, that I talk about mm-hmm. in the book. Since you now know that I work with energetics, one of the, the, the areas I found really interesting was the anorexia nervosa uh, portion of that paper. And one thing I thought that was kind of interesting was that women with anorexia nervosa perform better than healthy women on visuospatial tests, uh, where that's much more like kind of the male trait, quote unquote, if you will. Um, Could you explain how that might come about, especially because if they're performing better, going back to that energetic kind of hypothesis, they're putting energy that they don't have towards this specific form of cognition. Right. So there have been uh, quite a few studies now looking at uh, what, what I would call folk psychology, so language, theory of mind, reading, mm-hmm. vocal intonation, and so forth, in um, individuals, mostly women with anorexia, so they're chronic um, for, for nutrition and, and you know, of course, uh, calorie restriction. And they really take a hit on these folk psychology domains. One study, did give one particular type of visual spatial, and they, they're, and, and, and they, the women with anorexia do better than, than other women, which is a surprise. But they stated that probably they're not actually better at visual spatial skills, but that particular test, people who tend to be a little obsessive compulsive, mm. details mixed in, they focus on the details and miss the big picture, tend to do well on it. And a lot of women with anorexia kind of happen those personality traits. So that's probably what's going on. And then I guess related to that, have you or anyone you know looked into the opposite condition, obesity? You know, there's still, it's an eating disorder in many, in many ways, or even an addictive disorder. Uh, looking at differences in cognition between males and females if they're obese. That is a great, a great question. As, as you know, I touch on it a little bit in the article with... Mm-hmm. Diabetes, with yeah. And, you know, there, there, there are glucose issues there. And, you know, there may be, there's a little bit of a hint of maybe there are some sex-specific deficits. But unfortunately, in this literature, in fact, most of the other literatures, sex differences aren't reported, mm. are statistically removed as nuisances. And so it's like, well, we just control for sex. And then they don't report the data separately for males and females. And even the studies that do include uh, a cognitive assessment and report sex differences, 
they tend not to use tests that would be very sensitive to subtle deficits. And, and so some, some of the things I talk about it in the book and some of the other articles are saying, well, if, if we want to do more sensitive assessments, we need to give tests that, are, that show bigger sex differences. And we need yeah. to compare the results with respect to same-sex individuals. Well, there you go, everybody. We just gave a dissertation topic to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you, you sort of touched on this, but I was also curious about possible sex differences in anxiety and depression. I know that there are epidemiological data indicating gender differences in the U.S. So are these gender differences actually sex differences that you would consider universals or are they cultural syndromes? In other, in other words, do they fit in this model as well? Yeah, that, that would be a standard kind of psychological definition of vulnerability, vulnerability to some uh, psychological disorder. The uh, sex differences in depression, if one, one, there's none in childhood, but once you hit adolescence, it's about a two to one ratio in terms of extreme problems, and um, it's probably the same for anxiety, and, and looks to be universal. The anxiety is really the flip side of risk-taking. So guys engage in more risk-taking sorts of things than girls do, and they hurt or kill themselves as a result of it uh, at much higher rates starting, you know, actually starting from when they're kids. And the anxiety kind of puts a break on that, but you're still going to get kind of, you know, if you look at the whole distribution, you're gonna get more kind of extreme on that than men are. So I, I see that more as a normal sex difference and the disorder part is just kind of the right tail mm. of that. That makes sense. <clears throat> so I guess this is gonna loop us back to kind of the early part where we talk about education and evolution education. So you served on the National Board of Directors for the Institute of Education Science during the Bush and early Obama administrations. Could you tell us a little bit about that, what you did and kind of what your experience was like and maybe the difference between those two administrations? Sure. Yeah, so I, I, I served on the, uh, yeah, the, the National Board of Advisors for the Institute of um, Education Sciences and um, actually on the Na National Mathematics Advisory Panel, both focused on um, trying to improve um, educational outcome in, in the U.S. The uh, Institute for Educational Sciences is an attempt to put more scientific rigor into educational research to do more randomized controlled trials, more direct experiments, and, and so forth. So it, it, it's really trying to increase uh, the basic research base of that. And it's modeled directly after the um, National Institute. It's slow progress, but it, it is starting to make a difference. It's really kind of improving kind of the research foundation in, in education. The uh, National Board just kind of uh, oversaw budgets, research portfolios, and then a whole bunch of other sorts of things like the um, National Assessment of Educational Progress. We'd hear a lot about, and uh, IES actually funds a lot of uh, clinical trials of different educational interventions to see mm. if they work or don't work or when they work, when they don't work. And, and, and so forth. So it's really the, the research arm of the Department of Education. 
And did you see any difference in how the administrations operated between Bush and Obama? Well, yeah, yeah, that, uh, that's a good question. Uh, the biggest thing that changed was the name. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> was no child left behind for Bush, and then Obama came up with a different name. Uh, but the basic policies and goals were, I would say, 90% or so over. Mm. They were, you know, it, everybody wants to improve. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many ways that you can do it. And so there, there, there were some changes in terms of educational philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, Obama is more, people were more traditional, kind of more education like a humanity type of thing, more qualitative work. Bush was more interested in the NIH scientific model, but most of it stays. I know at a lot of our conferences, we have folks wondering about the generalizability and impact of the science that we all do and how policymakers find out about it and how, mm -hmm. how that, that translation process happened. So I'm curious how you got involved in that and how you made that jump. So, I mean, it, it wasn't something I sought out. So, so the, the board has 15 members, if I remember correctly, eight from um, just basic, you know, your standard academic types in psychology or mathematics or economics or education, whatever it is, and then seven who would be more policy oriented. So, so they have a mix of folks on it, which, mm -hmm. which is good. So somebody nominated me for, I'm not sure who, mm -hmm. and I was, you know, said, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so like, like other service positions. I was about to say, that's the, the typical academic response to service. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, then I was on the National Math Council for two years and it was an attempt to shore up the, uh, the algebra and algebra preparedness for U.S. Mm. Well, we thank you for doing that service yeah. as, as we all get thanked when we do those, those onerous tasks that are, that are very necessary nonetheless. Yep, I, I learned a lot. Um, Never be on a government panel that's going to write a report. <laughs> I can uh, yeah. So um, you mentioned that these several projects that you have going on are, are ongoing. Is there anything new on the horizon that you want to tell folks about? Yeah, so um, we're always doing the, uh, the math stuff. We've just looked at preschool risk factors, trying to identify the basic problems that will put kids behind already in math at the beginning of first grade. And I, I think we've identified that. The, the project, I think, was pretty successful. Now we have to figure out how to fix it, which we're working on. We haven't mm -hmm. figured out how to do that. Um, the other big issue in math is, the, um, uh, is algebra. And mm -hmm. so we're in the middle of a project trying to look at variation in algebraic outcomes and looking at non-cognitive cognitive problems factors, background factors, et cetera, looking at that. And so it'll, it'll be a few years before we have a handle on that. Okay, so I have to throw in um, a straw man question as a parent of teenage boys who, one of whom struggles with math mm -hmm. and having conversations with a lot of parents and our kids mm -hmm. who wonder about the relative importance of algebra and some of the math classes they're they're taking versus say learning how to I don't know fix a car or use their computer better or some practical skills uh -huh. why 
are these math classes important? What are we telling our kids? Right. Well, if you want to uh, fix a car now, you have, you have to learn how to use a fair amount of technology. And um, to get through that training, you have to know some math. You're probably not going to use directly all of the algebra and geometry that you might take. But while you're learning that, you're reinforcing even more basic skills, fractions, arithmetic, uh, your sense of number, and so forth. So it's really, you know, you're learning new stuff, but it's also a great built-in practice to solidify what you already do know. So even if the surface structure of it doesn't look like it's directly applicable, um, you're, you're, you're getting other benefits uh, from it. And the, um, you know, there, there's numerous long-term studies now looking at math competencies and um, uh, employability, productivity on the job, wages, the ability to get promoted to a manager. If you're a manager, you need to have some math skills. You need to schedule, you need to allocate time, you need to figure out sales peaks and all of that sort of thing. If you don't have those skills, you're stuck. You're not going anywhere. Mm. Even in areas where you, it may not be obvious that it's important. Mm. Now, if I can get my kids to listen to the podcast, we're all good. <laughs> Just have it playing during dinner. It'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, so we always like to end on a bit of a fun question, just to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, we're wondering what you do to maintain balance in your life. What do you watch, read, or listen to, or hobbies you might have? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I, I read a couple of books recently on economic history. Hmm. It was uh, pretty, pretty interesting. I've been doing Taekwondo for 23 years this month. Mm. Wow. So that, uh, I, I do that a couple times a week and have friends in there. And I like to hit and kick people. So it's, <laughs> it's, a, so it's, a, it's a real plus. So yeah. I've done Muay Thai before, but I'm a power lifter now. So, <laughs> so uh, do that, hang out with the family. So is there, uh, are you recruiting grad students? Is there anything that you'd like to promote? How should people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, I'm actually not recruiting grad students right now. I, I, I have one new grad student who'll be starting on the math project and, and paid off of our um, grants. Uh, I do a web page through the university and it's kind of reasonably up to date. We have an MU math study web page. I don't do social media because um, I just don't have time for it. I've done a number of podcasts and kind of uh, video interviews, but of course I don't have links up, yet, <laughs> but, but maybe I, I should do that. Yeah. Well, that's what we're here for yeah. to promote all that. Well, I am on social media. So if you want to learn more about what I'm doing, I'm Chris. I'm at Chris underscore L-Y and Kara is too. I am on Twitter at Kara Akabak. And we've been the Sausage of Science. We want to thank you for listening. Thank you, David, for joining us today. Thank thank you for having me. Make sure you share and like this podcast because that's how my uncle found out about it. So get your uncles to listen to the podcast. It actually works if your uncle rates us on Uh iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.